God, our Father, I, uh, I thank you for uh, our time together this evening. I thank you for these Sunday evening services that are so precious to us for that sweet fellowship before the start of another, another busy week. And I ask, please, that uh, as we continue to spend time together this evening, that you would indeed, as James has said, uh, speak through me. Please give me the right words to say, words that are spoken to my heart that might also speak to all of our hearts. Thank you that you are a good, gracious, real, true, and living God. And we graciously ask for your blessing upon us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. So to begin with, um, let's open our Bibles, shall we? Always a, always a good place to start. I kept it a bit of a secret, didn't I, in terms of where we were uh, reading from today. It's not on the notice sheet. Uh, in all honesty, that's because I haven't been entirely clear myself until everything started to coalesce. Uh, and we are definitely this evening going to be in First Kings uh, in chapter 19. Um, a favorite story of mine. You know I love to go back to the Old Testament. We were in First Peter last time when I stood up here, but back to the Old Testament today. And let me, let me just give a little bit of background. I think I'm speaking to an audience that will know these passages really well. Um, but famous stories we're in and amongst here. We have had, um, we've had three years of drought in the land of Israel. We've had Ahab the wicked king with his even more wicked wife Jezebel. Um, who have been killing the prophets of God, and as a result of that, there has been drought in the land that they are attributing to Elijah. Ahab is attributing to Elijah, and he's hunting everywhere for him, um, and Elijah cannot be found. And then Elijah calls all the prophets of Baal together on Mount Carmel, and you'll remember there is the great competition of the sacrifices, and the prophets of Baal are calling down fire from heaven, and nothing happens. And then Elijah stands up and calls upon God, and fire uh, comes from heaven, and there's that amazing victory. And then Jezebel finds out what has happened. An amazing victory, and the rain comes. Jezebel finds out what has happened. She says, Elijah's going to die. And she sends him a letter. Interesting, isn't it? But she sends him a letter. Elijah panics, and he runs, literally for his life. He runs a long way away, about as far south as he can get, out of Israel, down into Judah. Um, and the passage picks up here uh, with Elijah basically hiding himself in a cave after having been sustained by God. Uh, we have Elijah hiding himself uh, in a cave. So let's start at verse 9. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. 
And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am the only, uh, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Melohar you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Great passage. Love it. There's loads in it. Let's hope we find something from it this evening. How's your week been? Really good week? Really encouraging? Feeling really buoyed up by everything? Or has it been a really terrible week? One of those really oppressive ones where it seems that everything you touch has turned to dust and ashes. Every effort that you made has resulted in absolutely no results. Every conversation that you have seems to have offended somebody. How's your week been? Well, however it's been, let me encourage you with some verses from the Bible. Firstly, let's have a look at the omnipotence of God. Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. This is our God the creator God who we're meeting to worship this evening. Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5 says, He determines the number of the stars and he calls each of them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limits. Jeremiah 10 verses 12 to 13, But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and he stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, The waters in the heavens roar and he makes the clouds rise from the ends of the earth and he sends lightning with rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Our amazing, powerful God. And then his omniscience, our all-knowing God. Some verses there, Job 21 and verse 22. Can anyone teach knowledge to God since he judges even the highest? He knows everything from the top to the bottom. Psalm 139 verse 2 says... You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. And you are familiar with all my ways. Job 34 and 21. His eyes are on the ways of mortals and he sees their every step. And Matthew 10 verse 30. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Our God who knows everything, our God is all-powerful. And we could go on and look at his omnipresence, couldn't we? And we could find all sorts of verses about God being present everywhere and that amazing, wonderful God that we worship and serve this evening. And all of these verses are true, and they're as true today as they were when they were written down, and they are as true today as they will be throughout the rest of eternity. But does it really feel like that? Do you really feel that you are serving, worshipping, praying to, and in contact with, connected to, and loved by that God that we've just read about? All those particular verses? It doesn't always to me. 
I remember some years ago, it's probably about 15 now, I should have a look back through my notes, but probably around about 15 years ago, we were in the church up in Harrogate, and, and the church had been going fantastically well. The, the pastor was really enthusiastic. We'd had to move to two services on a Sunday morning. The youth group had grown uh, really big. We were struggling to know what to do even with the two services, and we had for many years been looking for new premises. And we felt very strongly that the Lord had led us to this particular property in the center of Harrogate that would cost a lot of money and it would need a lot of work doing on it, but we were convinced through the prayer of the leadership and through the prayers of the congregation and the fact that everything was falling into place that this property was the property for us and the church was going full speed ahead with it. All the congregation were behind it. We'd put all the plans in place as to how the move was going to go and then suddenly the guy who was selling the property pulled out and everything in terms of those plans fell apart and it felt like all that we were doing for the Lord and all the, the great mission that the church had to do in the town and moving forward with it, it all felt that it had actually just been completely blown out of the water by this change of plans in terms of the property. And we as a church and as a leadership team and certainly as an individual just felt really deflated and depressed. We'd come from this situation where God seemed to be a great God who was doing everything and then suddenly it all stops. And we just felt that we'd been a little bit abandoned by God and really felt that we were stuck in a bit of a hole and back to square one and we'd have to start all over again. You ever found yourself in that kind of a situation? Found yourself feeling a bit stuck? The psalmist did. Just a few psalms to call upon. Psalm 10, the psalmist cries out, why do you stand far off calling out to God? Very different from the verses we read earlier, isn't it? Psalm 73, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my feet almost slipped. Psalm 74, O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? I've often felt like that in my Christian walk and I'm sure all of us in this room have felt that, that way at times as well. And that's the situation that we find um, Elijah in at this particular time. He's known God's power. I mentioned at the start, didn't I, that wonderful scene on the top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and how God is victorious in that situation. But now he's run away in fear and he finds himself calling out to God in self-pity, struggling with the fear of it all. Let's, let's turn to verse 10 uh, again. Uh, and he says, this is uh, Elijah saying, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, and they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and they're seeking to take my life as well. They have torn down the altars, they're no longer worshipping God. They've turned their back on all of God's instructions. They've killed God's prophets, and now they're wanting to kill uh, Elijah as well. And Elijah is finding himself in this place of real pity and, and really struggling with things. And, and Elijah wants God to do great things again. Elijah remembers what it was like on the top of Mount Carmel and he wants God to act in power in that particular way. Have you ever noticed how God has a way of asking questions when we run away from him and run away from his will? To Adam in the Garden of Eden, he calls out, doesn't he? He says, where are you? He knew where Adam was, but calling out to him anyway. To Cain, he says to him, Cain, where is your brother? 
<coughs> to Samuel, uh, Samuel says uh, of Saul, uh, saying to Saul, what's that bleating I hear in terms of the sheep when he's kept the spoils of war that he should have destroyed? Or Jesus talking to Paul says to him, do you love me? There's a question there, isn't there? So often that God puts before us asking a question, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants us to stop short and think carefully in terms of the implications that the answer has in our lives. And it's a question that God has for Elijah in the cave. In verse 9 there, it says that the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the question that God asked him. And we read the response that Elijah gave to that. God knows what Elijah's doing here. God knows the answer. Elijah's run away. But this question gives Elijah a chance to vent, doesn't it? It allows him the opportunity just to to lay before the Lord how he genuinely feels about things, the struggles that he's having, that position that he finds himself in, looking at the world through his own eyes and feeling that he's in a really difficult and dark and dangerous place. (coughs) Excuse me. We must be careful that we are honest before God. And it's really important that we tell him our innermost feelings. I can understand when you're praying in church or perhaps in the youth group or when it's in the church prayer meeting, sometimes you might be a little bit guarded in what you say. But when you are shut away in the cave by yourself and when you are facing your own internal thoughts and doubts and fears, come before the Lord and tell him genuinely how you feel because he knows And in explaining to him what the inner thoughts of your heart are, it will help you to understand what his will for your life is. (coughs) Excuse me. Thank you, Barbara. Most people don't notice, but Barbara is always very careful to make sure that there's a drink of water for the speaker, which is very helpful on this occasion. Thank you. So when we cry out... And we cry out, even as the psalmist does in in Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We do it so that we can remember and be brought back to the fact that actually those verses only ever applied to Jesus Christ when he was on the cross, who was truly forsaken by God. God never forsakes us in the situations that we find ourselves in. At the moment, um, my boys are are really into the Marvel films, which seems to be a never-ending series of, well, all sorts of different stuff that goes on. But they all seem to be focused on these superheroes. Um, And it it really gets to the situation, seemingly, in every film that actually the end has come. It's a dire, desperate situation. All All has gone wrong. Evil is going to triumph. Everything is lost, and there is no hope. But they're holding out hope because this superhero who's going to come along who has this special power or has this special weapon or some kind of mystical knowledge and they're going to vanquish the foe and save the day. And that's, if you haven't seen the film, sorry that I'm spoiling them, but that's basically the way that they all work out. It's all centering around these superheroes who come in to save the world or indeed even to save the universe in, in some of these uh, fantastically um, presented films. 
And I often joke that, uh, certainly with the teen searchers, that, that my favourite story in the Bible uh, is in 2 Kings chapter 2 um, and verse 24, and it's Elijah's successor, uh, Elisha, uh, and he's walking along the road one day, um, and there's these young boys who start teasing him about the fact that he's bald, which I can understand, but obviously it's really rude that these young boys are doing it. They're saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Um, and the very next verse, immediately after that one, is these two she-bears come out of the woods and they maul to death 42 of these young boys who've been teasing Elisha about being bald. And I think, isn't that wonderful? This is the justice of God in perfect illustration. And that's the way it should always work because I know lots of situations almost every day when I would say, yeah, some she-bears should come out and get involved in this particular situation. Um, and, and she'd sort it out for me. That's the way, far too often, that I want God to do things. That's the way in which I want things put right. That's what I see as justice. And Elijah's in the same situation. Um, he's lamenting that he and the people of God are being defeated. Things are looking really bleak, and Elijah is wanting that superhero kind of power from God. He's wanting that kind of justice coming in. He wants God to act in power in the way in which he, Elijah, so I keep saying Elisha, don't I, in the way in which he, Elijah, uh, sees it. Like the disciples when they're talking to Jesus, you know, they, do you remember they wanted to call down fire from heaven or they said, oh, should we call down fire from heaven? That's the kind of power that they were wanting. Or like Jonah when he was looking over Nineveh and he was sitting and waiting and he was hoping that God was going to call down fire from heaven and destroy uh, the city of Nineveh. And I'm the same. I want God to act in power. I want him to act in power in the problems that I have in the business and I want him to act in power in the situations that I have in the family and I want him to act in power in the, um, the, the total moral depravity that I see in this country and I want him to act in power in the plans that we have in this church and I have all these great ideas how God could act in power and I can see him implementing his plans in that way. But let's just stop and consider for a minute the implications of God acting in power in the way that we so often want him to do. Just some of the stories from the Bible when God acts in power in that particular way is Noah's flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's the death of the firstborn in Egypt, isn't there, and the other plagues that there are there. There's the waters of the Red Sea closing in over the Egyptian army and destroying them all. There's Achan being the ground opening up and swallowing him and his family. There's 70,000 Israelites dying of plague after David takes a census um, in, uh, in the country. There's 185,000 Assyrians being wiped out in one night by the angel of the Lord. And then take a look at Revelation. Look at what's going to come in terms of God acting in power in the way that we so often say we want to see him working, the way that I so often say I want to see him working in the problems in my life. But God is very gracious to Elijah and he actually lets him have a glimpse of his power. Let's have a look again, shall we, at these verses. Uh, verse 11 on, and he said, this is God speaking, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. 
And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. I remember... um, being caught in wind uh, in the Alps many, many years ago and the situation that we actually just had to stand, not stand, we had to lie down flat and cling to the rocks with our hands and wedge our feet as best we could for about 20 minutes to avoid being swept away by that wind and it was an incredibly powerful wind. Exciting, frightening, amazing power was in it But imagine a wind that is actually breaking the rocks and the power of that particular wind. And then an earthquake. Years ago when I was at university, I woke up in the middle of the night and and the bed was shaking. And I hadn't had a bad dream or anything like that. But I saw the light fitting, swinging on the ceiling, a really weird sensation. And then I saw on the news in the morning that there had been an earthquake uh, in Wales. It didn't cause any damage, but the earth moved. It It was a strange feeling. And then I think it must have been probably in around about 1980, Uh, We went to Morocco as a family, and I remember seeing that even now, I would have been seven, eight, nine years old, something like that, the the devastation in Morocco from an earthquake that had taken place in 1960. And even now, I can remember imprinted in my mind the power of that earthquake and how immense it was. Or look at the fires that have been taking place in Australia um, over the last month or so, the speed with which they move, the intense heat that is generated We tend to think of fire, don't we, as the log burners that we have at home or the the small bonfire that we have in the garden. Look at it that way. But look at the the power of fire that is there. And Elijah's probably in the situation, isn't he, as he sees these things, remembering the the fire that came down on Mount Carmel and and the wonderful power that there is there. But what does it say in these three occurrences? It says, the Lord wasn't in the wind. And the Lord wasn't in the earthquake, and the Lord wasn't in the fire. The enemies of Elijah, who have killed the prophets, and who he's lamenting over, and he's thinking that he has lost to, the gods that they worship are the gods of fire, and the gods of earthquakes, and the gods of fertility, and the gods of rain, and all these other gods of nature. People look at the situations around them and pray to the gods of those particular natural phenomenon. And God is saying, they are no gods at all. There is no God in the wind, there is no God in the earthquake, there is no God in the fire. He's saying, I am in control of those situations. There are no gods who are present in those particular natural phenomena. When we're feeling lost and powerless, and when it feels that God isn't there, we want him to act because we don't understand his ways. The power that we often want him to show is the power that this world wants, but it's not God's power. It's not the way that he chooses to reveal himself. In Isaiah 55, he tells us, doesn't he, through the, through the prophet Isaiah, verses 8 and 9, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher 
than your thoughts. Just take a moment to absorb those verses and, and think about what they mean in the context of what I've been talking about this evening. The desires that we have, the solutions that we can see that God should implement and what God is actually saying about the solutions that we're imagining. But through it all, and in the despair that Elijah finds himself in, there is God's promise, isn't there, that comes shining through. God isn't in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but after those, there comes a low whisper, or it could be translated a thin silence. It's verse 12 there. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Repetition in the Bible is always important and we shouldn't ignore it when it happens. Um, God doesn't use any of his words idly and he has put every word in this wonderful book for our instruction. And it's interesting to see, isn't it, that what we actually have here is a direct repetition of God's question and Elijah's response to what happens there. But I think, although the words that we see on the page are the same, I think the circumstances are very, very different in the way in which these words come out. If you think about it before the earthquake and the wind and the fire, Elijah's been there in a situation of despair, hasn't he? And God comes along and says, Elijah, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, Lord, there's this and there's that and the next thing, and it's all gone wrong, and it's all really bad, and he's, he's venting. He's really frustrated with the way things are. And then we have this incredible display of worldly power, the earthquake, the sound of that, the sound of the wind, the roar of the fire. And then we have this stillness, this thin silence, this whisper, and God speaking out after the whisper. And he comes again. And you can imagine, though, the question is the same because the situation has changed so much the impact that that question has must have been so much more powerful in speaking to Elijah. And the response that Elijah's giving, maybe when he is saying those same words back again, he's saying them much more from a perspective of self-reflection and analysis and thinking about what that self-pity and what that grumbling and what that putting himself at the center of everything actually means in the light of who God now has shown himself to be and what God has shown that, the, that he is capable of doing. God has been very gracious in the way that he has dealt with Elijah. And he is very gracious also in the way in which he deals with us. As we come to him and say, Lord, you have to fix my problems in this particular way. He asks us questions. He asks us to go back to his word he asks us to see what he says about himself. He asks us to trust in the promises that he has given. He asks us to believe that he is still the God that we read about back at the start. He is still all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. And for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, he is also all-loving and he is all-forgiving. And all of those things wrapped together should mean that when we are responding to his questions, 
we are now able to do it in a very different and in a very trusting way. God is very gracious to Elijah, isn't he? Because he doesn't throw Elijah on the dust heap. And if we, if we have a look at the, uh, at the following verses, uh, verses 15 to 17, um, the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. He is reinstating Elijah. He's giving him a job to do. Elijah was wanting God to rain power, earthly power down on everything that's going on. And God is saying, I'm sending you. I'm sending you back into this situation. And because I'm a good God, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. You are going to go, and in my power, you are going to anoint kings. And in my power, you are going to anoint a predecessor. And in my power, those people will carry out my will. God, in his incredible wisdom, chooses to manifest his power through us. He has a calling for each of us. He doesn't want to rain fire down on the world out there. He wants us to look to him, lift ourselves out of our self-pity, and go in his power and transmit that to the world out there to make a real and a genuine difference. He doesn't show his power in the way that the gods of this world do. But for those of us who love Christ and are called according to his purpose, he wants to work in us and through us to transform the world, even in this coming week. God is the all-powerful God. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that he is going to manifest his power in the way that the world thinks he should do it. Let's remember that he is the God who had a plan to save Israel through the baby in the basket in the bulrushes. He had a plan to reign over Israel through the king who was a boy shepherd. He had a plan for salvation for all his people through the baby who came in the form of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I do hope genuinely that there is something that you can take away from what we've heard this evening. It's spoken to me as I've been in preparation. Um, if I'm honest, uh, rebuked me somewhat, perhaps in the way that, uh, that God has rebuked Elijah. Um, and I trust that we can all go away here and serve in the power of God as we go into the next week. We're going to sing one song again in closing. But before we do that, let me pray and then we'll stand together uh, and sing. God, our Father, uh, we do thank you again for your words, and we thank you that um, when we spend time in it, uh, if we give you opportunities, you will always speak to us. You will encourage us, and you will gently whisper to us of your nature uh, and of how precious we are in your sight because of what Jesus has done and of the fact that you have not forgotten us and that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us but you will keep us close to you through now and into eternity. Lord, please may your word speak deeply to our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.